You can't get saved until you refuse to keep living in sin. You can't get saved until you refuse to stop doing some things you're doing. After years of helping her husband Jim smuggle drugs into Florida, 1991 seems to be the year Judy McFarlane was ready to turn it all around and give herself and her four kids a better, safer, more stable life. And it's not clear if that was because she was tired of the lifestyle and the trouble or because she didn't have a choice after Jim was arrested and deported to Canada, effectively ending their smuggling pipeline. But whatever spurred the transition, it seems like Judy had hit rock bottom and was desperate. The single mom had abruptly lost her income, she was on probation, and she'd lost or left her husband. But in the midst of that chaos, Judy was bound and determined to get back on her feet. She found a church, she quit drinking, she was going to school, and then she lost her home and everything in it. And it sounds like things went from bad to frantic as she tried to figure out how to get herself and her kids back on their feet. No matter how much you're bleeding and how tough it seems to be, strap your shoulders back, put your feet down and say, I will not die in my disaster. I will not die in my dilemma. I will come out of this. Judy clung to her new church and became consumed with reading her Bible and attending the church's classes and services. Positive that she'd found the thing that could pull her out and save her, I don't think Judy had any idea she was getting closer to danger than she'd ever been before. But I'm here to tell everybody under the sound of my voice, I'm coming out of this. I will not die in my dilemma. I will not die in my disaster! I'm Haley Holloway, and this is Shallow Graves. If I ever seen him under the roof of a church, it was probably at somebody's funeral or wedding. Okay. These girls, the girls, I don't ever recall ever them talking about no church and stuff, okay. going to church. When Judy started going to this church and the Pentecostal stuff, was that weird? Yeah, they talk in, they, they like suddenly they go like into a trans thing, you know, yeah, they the start tongues. talking weird crap that you can't understand. Was that odd that Judy got into that? Uh, yeah. I've been asking as many people as I can about this new church chapter in Judy's life. And what I've gathered is that neither Judy nor her sisters were the slightest bit religious as adults. Though it sounds like their mom was raised in the Baptist church and had tried to get her girls to go while they were growing up like she had. And it was always, you know, Baptist. They were raised Baptist. Pine Grove Baptist Church in Gainesville. That's where they all went to church. They come from the farm, packed up in the back of a pickup truck to the church. And then Judy started going to this Pentecostal church? Yeah. I don't know how much you know about the Pentecostal church, but it's not your stereotypical Sunday morning church experience. And I'm not an expert here. In fact, my only experience with the denomination was when I was a reporter in Knoxville, and I was sent to the hills of southern Kentucky to cover the death of a snake-handling Pentecostal preacher. The preacher had been bitten by his rattlesnake during a sermon, refused medical treatment, as was part of the religion, and died. 
And maybe that was an Appalachia Pentecostal specific scenario, because I've not found anything indicating Judy was attending a snake handling Pentecostal branch, but hers did believe in making yourself physically available to the Holy Spirit, something the congregation experienced regularly during services when members would start dancing or speaking in tongues. If you're Catholic and you went to a Pentecostal service, it would probably freak you out the first time you went. Well, the tongue thing, I, I, yeah. I you know, I'd read about it in the newspaper occasionally, something like that. I don't think I ever knew. Yeah. It just sounded too wild for me. Right. Wow. But they believe in, uh, you know, dancing in the spirit and those kind of things. That happens in the service. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I mean, it does sound like entertaining. Yeah. Too. Yeah, it's, it's amazing to watch. This is Charles Moore from Judy's Bible Study again, telling Detective Kevin Allen about the church they'd each attended in the early 90s. Yeah, it, it's definitely enlightening. And their, you know, their approach with people is always, you know, love and kindness and acceptance. And even though they have standards that their members live by, where many of the old-time Pentecostals, they don't watch TV, you know, they don't cut their hair, they don't, you know, they don't wear, the women don't wear pants, they don't wear makeup. Oh, uh, that's old school. A lot of the old school, the men wear nothing but long sleeves. They, they practice modesty, I guess is the mm-hmm. best way to How about drinking? No drinking. No alcohol. A, a matter of kind of cleansing yourself, I guess, to make yourself more presentable to God. You know? And uh, the Spirit, so you allow the Spirit to come in and then Jesus speaks through you? Or speaks through you, yeah. The Spirit actually speaks through you. Wow, that must be interesting. Yeah. Does it happen in the service? It happens during services. I mean, it can happen at any time, really. Any time that you basically submit yourself to it. Wow. So this is like a 180 from Judy's life with Jim McFarlane, right? And I've just always found this to be such a compelling piece of her story. This transition from the drug smuggling days with her husband to this arguably intense branch of Christianity. It seemed that she went from non-religious to to so religious, and I had always wondered about that and what kind of spurred that on for her. Right. I knew she was getting religious because she was reading her Bible all the time. Probably for the last six months since she didn't start the school, she's been reading the Bible. I found it kind of odd, and I don't know who invited her to go. Maybe somebody in that trailer park. Maybe she ran into him at at the bank or at a minute market. I don't know. It was actually the guy with the bank account who invited Judy to the church, James Arnett. And after she visited, the church's outreach program sent someone to her home to give her a presentation about the religion and the church. The person who gave that presentation was the teacher of the Bible study that Judy started going to. Here's Charles Moore again talking with Detective Allen in 2016 about what he remembers from the Bible study. She was always, you know, one or two pews behind me, you know, she was never right up front where we were. It was always like she was she was there, she was interested, but she wanted to be in the shadows, you know what I mean? Was she sitting with the group or behind the group? She was with the group. Okay. Yeah, I mean, uh, not right in the middle, but kind of, like I said, she she wanted to be more of a wallflower, I guess. Not. Do you uh, ever recall hearing her speak or asking any questions or so you can get any read on her personality or anything? I don't. I don't remember her saying anything. Okay. Did she come alone, or did she come with other people? Every time that I saw her, it was she was always seemed to be by herself. Okay. Um, and I don't, I don't, I don't even know how she got to church because I think she lived in the trailer park that was up the street from the church. Okay. I don't remember the name of the trailer park. Like I said, I, the only thing I remember 
is, is her, the mental image that I have is her sitting behind me in the church. And it's a very, uh, I remember being modest, you know, not really um, dressing flattering or wearing a lot of jewelry or Not flashy. Like not flashy at all. Just blending in. Yeah. Judy had been going to this church since February of 1991, so almost a year. And from what I can tell, she went to Sunday and Wednesday services, she did the in-home presentation, and she was going to this Monday night Bible study. And she was all in. Her family said she never went anywhere without her Bible, and even the friend who took her to the church in the first place said she was borderline obsessed. Detective Allen and I have both been pretty invested in this church chapter, but less in Judy's actual worship and more in who she was worshiping with. Specifically, the man who taught the Bible study and gave Judy that in-home presentation at her mom's house. And I want to tell you why he's been such a focal point up front. First, when the detective interviewed this teacher in 2016, he asked about the last time Judy was seen alive and he got a different story from what detectives had recorded in 1992. Then there's his history of domestic violence that the detective said coincided with Judy's case. And then Detective Allen really took note of the teacher's big shifts in demeanor when he brought up subjects the teacher didn't like or didn't want to talk about. None of those things mean this Bible study teacher had anything to do with Judy's disappearance or murder but each of them gave the detective reason to dig into how the teacher and Judy met and the extent of their relationship. And by the way, if you've noticed that I've never named this guy, that's because Detective Allen asked me not to, because of the teacher's place in this investigation. So I've adjusted and removed or bleeped it anytime his name has come up, and I even decided to take it a step further in not identifying the church. But both still have to be discussed. Okay, so we were in the church area, and one of Judy's sisters, Jeanette, told you that Judy had fallen for somebody at church and that they'd been exchanging love letters. Here's another reason for the investigation into Judy's church life. When Detective Allen opened this case, it came up that back in 91, Judy had told her younger sister Jeanette that she was in love with someone at her church who was married and they'd been exchanging letters. Jeanette didn't go to Judy's church, so she didn't know any of the people there, but she told Detective Allen that Judy was talking about her pastor. So when the detective started interviewing people, the church's pastor was one of his first stops. And he found out that Judy had sent the head pastor some letters, though the pastor said they weren't romantic, more religious. And he also told the detective he'd barely known who Judy was in the year she attended the church. I wish I could help you more, Kevin, but I can't. I just don't know anything hardly to tell you. I come out of the office, I go to the pulpit, I, I preach, I shake hands with people. She just started coming. And it was like, and so I didn't interact with her very much outside of like meeting you at church and shaking your hand. And, you know, she was just come and go, come and go. And like, we have three services a week. I think Judy only came maybe on Sunday morning. Detective Allen said most of the questions he asked the pastor were met with the suggestion that he go talk with the Bible study teacher. And he so, ran your Monday evening Bible study class? Yeah, and, and, and you know, people would come, we'd set it up, have, have coffee and just visit with our people and then start teaching discipleship program. And Judy came to that. And was the teacher. That's why I said had seen her 
way after I'd seen her. I saw her at church. Hey, Judy, how are you? You know, that's it. So, that's, I sort of think maybe you could get more insight or info from than you could from me. Yeah, he was, again, completely cooperative at that point. He said, I do remember there were some unusual letters sent to me, which I don't have anymore. But he basically said, I didn't have anything to do with her. You know, she was a, a new member of the congregation and was the person that would have taken care of all that stuff. And as far as those letters are concerned, I, I destroyed them. I was wondering, since Jeanette was the one who told you about this maybe relationship or, or love letters or something, if she'd gotten the verbiage wrong and maybe it was Judy was exchanging these letters with. Uh, that's entirely possible and is not something that I had entertained well, until just, today. So I decided to go straight to the original source and I asked Judy's younger sister, Jeanette, about Judy's crush. This is another thing that Kevin was talking to me about. She liked somebody at the church or a pastor or somebody. That came out of her mouth that she was in love with the pastor. Was so the pastor, it possible, Jeanette, that it wasn't the head pastor and could have been somebody else who taught in the church or like a Bible study that's teacher? That's what came out of her mouth to me, that she was in love with the pastor. Okay. Maybe it was a mistake, but that was the words that came out of her mouth to her sister was, I'm in love with the pastor. Detective Allen did never get to the bottom of this love letter story who Judy had been talking about, or even if things might have just been lost in translation. But he did dig up quite a bit about this Bible study teacher, and a new last time Judy was seen alive. I'm sure you know the original telling of what happened after that Monday night Bible study by heart at this point, but when Detective Allen talked with the teacher about it in 2016, a new trip to check on Judy came up. That was the story in 92. But when you went and talked to him, it turns out he went back for Judy. Yes. Obviously, the logical person uh, detective would want to talk to was the last person that saw the victim alive. But an interesting fact came up when I was interviewing him that he went back to check on Judy again to ask her if she wanted a ride home. And I it never quite felt comfortable to me that he had not volunteered that information in 1992, that he waited until my interview to volunteer that information. I obviously want to be really careful and as accurate as possible here, so know that I have quadruple checked my reporting. Though for the millionth time, there's not much to the original investigation for me to verify. But what I can tell you that was documented by a detective in 92 is that the Bible study teacher told the sheriff's office that the Monday night class got out at 9 p.m. He and Charles Moore started to drive out of the parking lot when they saw Judy, and when they went and asked her if she wanted a ride and she declined, that was it. The same detective said Charles Moore reported the same thing. But in the 2016 version, the Bible study teacher told Detective Allen that same first part of the story, but then added that he'd gone back and stopped Judy, who was then on her walk home, and asked her if she wanted a ride again. Ever cautious of falling into a presumption or bias, the detective, though uncomfortable with a new version of the last time his victim was seen alive, allows for other possibilities. A lot of times everything that happens in a police interview doesn't always get put in the police report, so I don't naturally assume someone was hiding something then or or not. So I you know gotta be objective, that's the main thing. But it is a little weird. It sure was. 
Another strange part of this 2016 version was that this Bible study teacher, who was so specific in his storytelling, walked the detective through that night with tons of details, down to how much it was drizzling and which way he'd turned out of the church parking lot. But the whole time he was telling the detective this story, he kept saying he was with some guy named Steve. And so he's telling Detective Allen all about how he was in the car with Steve and they felt so bad about leaving Judy and how he wished they'd done more. But then the detective had to correct him and the story he was telling because, as you know, everything from 92 said he was with Charles Moore, including Charles. And at that point, it had been 24 years since Judy's disappearance. So with that amount of time having passed, do all of these new or different pieces mean anything? I don't know. How much would you remember about the last time you saw someone right before they were murdered? I said, tell me all about your situation in life at that point, because I had done a little bit of research on him, and I had found out two rather unusual incidents that involved him. Next up is the Bible study teacher's domestic violence arrest. And the detective, who regularly says he doesn't believe in coincidences in his line of work, said that this was noteworthy to him because the arrest was in June of 92, the same month Judy's body was found in the retention pond. It did seem that you found that incident particularly interesting with his wife. Yes, and he had a a very unusual reaction when I confronted him with it, when the interview kind of turned from being collaborative to a bit more confrontational. And, you know, when I asked him to, you know, tell me the facts of that case, he said something along the lines, well, you already know all the facts and you've got the report right in front of you, which I did not you know, at the time. He was very defensive about it, but the way he acted was very offensive. What can you tell me about the incident between and his wife? When I spoke to the wife, she described it as uh, a very horrible event where a sharp object was placed against her throat and he threatened to cut her or kill her and she was scared to death of him. She ended up filing for a restraining order and documented almost a year of repeated beatings and forced sexual activity. She said he was a violent drunk and that she finally called the police for help when one of their daughters was injured in an outburst. Then, the Bible study teacher's ex-wife told the detective that her then-husband had been having affairs with his Bible study students. Detective Allen brought that up to the teacher, who said they just throw themselves at you, and that there became jealousy, mistrust, and crazy stuff between him and his wife. He told Detective Allen that that domestic violence arrest was the reason he was no longer working at the church, and that he'd resigned. And he ended by saying, what's done is done. There were these rumors he was having affairs with women in the church, and he was the go-to-your-house Bible study teacher. And his, even his wife named two women. Yeah. Seemed like very risky behavior from the church perspective, from a liability standpoint, especially if any of them said he really came on too strong or tried to force himself upon church members. And that's why, you know, I just never was 100% comfortable with the people I spoke to uh, from the church. The love letters thing made me at least a little bit uncomfortable, and then the the preacher's reaction to that, initial reaction to that, and then his reaction was much more guttural. And sometimes I try not to judge, but I do trust my gut. Sometimes that's instinctive. You know, if someone's accusing you of something, you, you, 
you'd get angry. Like uh, I, I can tell frequently with murder suspects, especially if it's a violent crime, if you accuse someone of a heinous crime, the fact that they get upset and angry at being accused of that, I think it's a pretty natural reaction. So mm -hmm. I was unable to gauge it on his part other than to say, I definitely think I should go visit him again. The biggest trigger in this interview was around whether the Bible study teacher would help the sheriff's office clear him. Towards the end of my interview, after you know we kind of calmed things down after getting confrontational, I said, I think this case is solvable because eventually we will pull DNA, the suspect's DNA, from the crime scene. So I may be back in touch with you again someday to talk about this. So I was thinking about asking him for DNA right then, but it had been so confrontational, I think I wanted to back off, do a lot more research on him, and then schedule another visit to him at his house, just kind of see him in his own environment. I did see you asked him for a polygraph. Yes, and he had an immediate negative response to that, too. That's interesting. Uh, said, I will not take a polygraph, so. He refused to take a polygraph several times, saying he didn't have a lot of confidence in them and that he didn't believe they were a true sign of anything. He added that he wasn't a big fan of polygraphs and the detective would just have to take his word for it that he'd told the truth. He got very aggressive. He stood up. He had tears in his eyes a couple of times, but the thing kind of never quite forget about that interview. He said, I have guilt about Judy's case. He kind of insinuated that he had an opportunity to save her life mm -hmm. because when she did not get in the car with him to take a ride home, then that's the night she disappeared. Mm -hmm. So, and I wasn't sure if that was a little bit of his subconscious. You know, everyone's a suspect to me at that point. So if he was saying that just to deflect or if he did, you know, if his mm -hmm. conscience was bothering him a little bit. Detective Allen usually ends his interviews by asking the other person if they have any questions for him. And that's when the Bible study teacher asked, are you saying I'm a suspect? And Detective Allen told him, everyone's a suspect. Was he ever brought in? I mean, was he really talked to back then as, I mean, like you said, he was the last person to see her alive. Um, they interviewed him. I don't think it was an adversarial interview at all. I think it was strictly informational. I don't think he was thought to even have the potential as a suspect by the original investigators. I obviously wanted to talk with the Bible study teacher myself to hear straight from him what happened and to see if we could straighten all these stories out. So I called and left him a message about the podcast asking him to call me back. And he did. And I've decided to just play the call for you as is. This is uncut, unedited in any way, and you can take from it what you will. Hello, this is Haley. Hello, Miss Haley. My name is You just called me a few, about an hour ago, I guess. I did, Thanks for calling me back. Okay. Um, I am a journalist. I have a podcast, and I have worked with Detective Kevin Allen for, gosh, probably 10 years off and on on different cold cases. And he had wanted me to work on Judy McFarland's case. Um, and so I'm doing a season on Judy's cold case and, of course, have come across your name. And I was wondering if you would do an interview with me. Well, uh, Kevin Allen, is, is he with the Elijah County Sheriff's Department? Yes. 
Yeah, I don't, I don't remember whether that was uh, the person that I talked with. I, in the past, I talked with uh, uh, the FBI and the Lachey County Sheriff's Department when we were trying to find Judy McFarland. And they have, if if you want to know, know anything, uh, I would recommend talking to them because they they have uh, talked extensively with me back back during that time and and even afterwards. And uh, they have everything, uh, you know, every all the information that I know about the case, okay? Yeah, and I have. I work with Detective Allen really closely, but I always like to talk to the people who who were involved themselves and, and see what they remember and hear the firsthand experience, if that makes sense. Right, I understand that part of it, but I don't want to be involved with any of that. Like I said, uh, uh, the Sheriff's Department and, and the FBI has everything that I know when I talked with them. And uh, I don't really, because of the family and because of how much I care for the family, I don't want to get involved with any kind of uh, uh, media thing, okay? okay? And I am working with Judy's family. They're part of this, if that makes a difference. Yes, but it's been over 20 years. I don't even think you were born yet. Were you born yet when it happened? <laughs> yes, I had been born. And how old were you? I was very young. I was very young, but I think right. just because a lot of time's gone by, I think it's still really important. Oh no, no, no! The case is very important. Uh, but from what I understand from the Alachua County Sheriff's Department, they have a very, very good idea of who did it. Yeah. And what happened to her? Okay. From what I understand, even some names were were discussed with me. So I, I, but I don't like. I said, if you want to find that out, you'll have to talk to them. Okay. Okay. Um. Are you sure you don't mind just a couple minutes? No, ma'am, I'd rather not, just out of respect and deference to the family and Miss Judy McFarland herself and her memory. Okay, I understand. Um, I was just really curious since it seems like you were the last person to see her. I don't know for sure about that. Yeah, that just seems to be kind of from their timeline putting it together. It seems like you were the there when she left Bible study that night. Yeah, that was in the paper, I believe. Yeah, and then um, Detective Allen mentioned to me that you might have gone back to see her again. Mm, that's not true, ma'am. And I, like I said, I don't want to discuss any more about it, okay? And I thank you very much. That's how things get twisted around. I see that. All right, well, thank you. That's why I don't want to do the interviews, just simply for that statement right there. Uh, okay, thank you very much. Don't call anymore. Twist anything. You told the detective you went back. So overall, what was your impression once you sat down with him, talked to him, where does he go on your list? I didn't trust him, and I don't know that I believe him. Interesting. What's the likelihood he had something to do with Judy's death? Well, he's the last person to be seen alive with her. Uh, he provided new information about a second contact with her that had not been mentioned previously. And he had a real unusual reaction when I was interviewing him, so I think fairly high. And yet, still not the highest. Bobby Nars, in my opinion, is the strongest suspect in this case. Bobby Nars got out of jail on January the 13th, 1992, and Judy McFarland was reported missing on January the 16th, 1992. How long were you with Bobby, Jeanette? 
off and on uh, for years. Were you afraid of Bobby? Yeah, because he's evil. He's very evil. I believe he's in hell either way. That's on the next episode of Shallow Graves. If you know anything about the murder of Judy McFarland, call the Alachua County Sheriff's Office. You can find me on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter, or call me and leave a message about this season. The number is 352-559-5717. Music for this season is by Market Lineout Studios, and all reporting, producing, and editing is done by me, Haley Holloway. <laughs>